In this talk, we're going to be looking at some very, very important issues, difficult issues. And the difficulty is we come from a very strong culture, a Western culture, which, by the way, has very, very strong biblical roots. So much of what is in our so-called Western culture goes actually all the way back to the biblical worldview, and we don't need to apologize for that. But being a strong culture, we're often insensitive to other cultures. We love to go out and teach, but we're teaching from our Western perspective. So I know that all of you here are concerned about how do we bring about change in our world? How can we make the world a better place? That's what Gil Odendahl was talking about this morning. How can we build peace, uh, prosperity, deal with very, very difficult issues? Um, <clears throat> But the problem is it's not happening. And when we look around the world, well, you read the, see the media, the, read the newspapers as much as, more than I do. Uh, there are many, many, many difficult and very little change is occurring. When we look at our own situation here in the United States, there are many, many worrisome things going on. So how do we bring about change? And that's a very, very important question. Uh, many of you are involved in short-term missions. My wife and I did one short-term mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, short-term in terms of 35 years. Uh, and short-term missions don't bring about change. Now, short-term missions can be of some help, but it's extremely limited. Change takes a long time. Uh, now you're supposed to advance. That's what it's supposed to do. Okay. <clears throat> we look at Africa, which is where we spent just about half of our lives. The gospel has spread widely. There are, I don't know, 400, 500 million Christians in sub-Saharan Africa. We've spent over $3 trillion of aid in Africa over the last 60 years. Missions, USAID, World Bank, International Monetary Fund. There's been more than a century of mission work. I have no idea how many hundreds of thousands of Missionary years have been invested in Africa, but health has not improved. Transformation has hardly begun. Corruption remains extremely high, and poverty is terrible. So, what have we missed? Same situation in Haiti. These statistics come from the World Almanac. People of Haiti, 80% are Catholic, 16% are Protestant, and 95% are voodoo. Now, that's bad mathematics, 
but it's reality. So, why is voodoo so strong when 96% of the people claim to be Christian? And why is animism so strong? And animism is still the default position in Africa. In spite of a veneer of Christianity on top of it. And this should be of deep concern to us all. Uh, what have we missed? So we could say that of the four to five hundred million Christians in Africa, they are Christian animists. Or they are animistic Christians, however you want to look at it. But change on the deep levels has not occurred. The city of Arua is a big city on the western border of Uganda, right on the Uganda-Congo border. It's a city I know fairly well. My wife's parents spent years on the Congo side in Aru. Uh, Africa Indian Mission has worked there for a hundred years. Church Mission Society from England, Anglican. Other missions have worked there for a hundred years. But in an article on the front page of the Sunday edition of the New York Times in July, it described the, what happened to Jennifer Anguko. She was the wife of a government official in Uganda. And she went into the city hospital in Arua uh, for, I think it was her fourth delivery. Not anticipating any troubles, but she began to bleed. And to bleed quite heavily. No one came to care for her. Her husband went all over the city of Arua for eight hours. And no doctor would come. No nurse would come. And it seems likely she had a placenta previa. And after eight hours, she died with no care whatsoever. In a city that's Christian. In a city that's been Christianized. Where we have been working for a century. So, the real question is, what have we missed? Well, let's see what the faith has accomplished. The Christian faith is a powerful, powerful faith, and it produces powerful cultural changes. The history of the first three centuries after Christ is remarkable. And there are books written about that. And it's really amazing the cultural changes that occurred because followers of Jesus took the faith with them everywhere they went and within three centuries had transformed the Roman Empire. Well, what brought about this? Uh, many things that they did. Uh, reason. And reason is biblically based. Permeated culture. Faith permeated culture. And this led slowly to freedom. But many other things the early people, Christians, did. They cared for sick people. Sick people in the Roman Empire were kind of, you know, pushed aside, neglected. Many chronically sick people were pushed out on the streets. The Christians picked them up, took them to their homes, cared for them, nursed them back to life, and of course brought the message of salvation to them. And this blew the Romans away. Why are these people doing this? 
that had a powerful impact. Concern for the poor and the alienated. In the Roman Empire, in the first century, there were 25% more men than women. And that demographic data demonstrates. Why? Because of female infanticide. High abortion rates of uh, and throwing female babies away. The Christians picked them up and cared for them, raised them as Christians. But within three centuries, the Christian faith had restored dignity to women and, re- well, restored the proper gender balance of one to one. They brought order and cleanliness into cities. The city of Antioch was a horrible city in the time of the apostles. Filthy, disorganized, violent, except in the Christian quarter. And people began moving into the Christian quarter because it was safer and cleaner and became Christian. There was increased learning and education. And all of this totally did away with the Greek and Roman gods and gods. They're gone forever. So here is a wonderful example of what the Christian faith can do. Similar things happened after the Reformation. The Reformation was based on that word from the Lord, the just shall live by faith. That put the individual person back into the center of life away from the institution. Through all of the ages between the 4th century and the uh, 17th century, it was the institution that was the center of life, and it was the institution by means which, of which people could be saved. And But God's Word said differently. The just shall live by faith. In other words, it's a personal relationship with God that counts, and it's people who are, should be at the center of human life. The second thing the Reformation did was to translate the Bible into many languages of the people, so that people could now begin to read what God said. And as they read, they said, this is how we should live. They read the values of integrity and truth-telling and hard work and, and many, many other basic values which do build society, do build culture, do build civilization. And the most important value that came into Europe through this translations of the Word of God was trust. People began to trust each other. And that, many international experts believe, is the key value that determines whether a country is going to prosper or whether it is not. High-trust countries do well. Low-trust countries do poorly. And there's a sociologist at the University of Michigan who has documented this. And he has developed simple questionnaire and uh, observational criteria, trained people, to do sample surveys in many, many of the countries of the world to determine the extent to which people trust other people. How wide are your circles of trust? Uh, And this is what he came up with. And he came up with what he expected to find. 
Namely, a gradient from here up to there. This is trust, high trust, low trust. This is uh, per capita income, poor to wealthy. And he got what he was looking for. This gradient, low trust people are poor, high trust people are rich. But he discovered something he never expected to find. That there's a religious overlay to this. Um, The high trust wealthy nations, with one exception, are all nations that have come through the Protestant Reformation. Now that says something to us. The one exception, the primary exception is Japan. He's got Ireland there, which is Roman Catholic, more or less. But Roman Catholicism is across here, mid to low trust, poor, wealthy. The Orthodox countries are here and Islam is down here. So trust is what's lacking in Africa. Trust is what's lacking in Haiti. Trust is what's lacking in many Latin American countries and other Asian countries. Uh, And it is high trust that has enabled many of these countries to prosper. Now, this was back in 1995. I wonder where the United States of America would fall today in terms of the extent to which people trust each other. It's falling, unfortunately. So, uh, another example is England. The beginning of the 18th century... In the 1700s, England was a horrible place. Extremely poor. Corruption. The church was totally spiritually dead. And all kinds of injustices. It was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and child labor and all those kind of things. Two men changed England. I should say correctly, God, through two men, changed England. John and Charles Wesley. Well, what did the Wesleys do? John preached the good news. John wasn't a terribly good preacher, but thousands of people came to faith because they heard the word of God from him, and then he organized them into small groups to study the Bible. And in studying the Bible they were to discover the method of the Christian life. Which, of course, is where the term Methodism comes from. They were called Methodists. So these small group Bible studies, plus the music that came from his brother Charles, transformed England. And out of that, of course, came the Wilber, uh, William Wilberforce and Dickens and Shaftesbury and many, many others. <coughs> So here's another example of where the Christian faith radically changes culture. Korea is another example. The Korean revival started in 1907 in Pyongyang, in North Korea. And small groups of farmers who came to a real spiritual, they were Christian, but they they had a real spiritual renewal. And God gave them a vision of what an ideal Korean village should look like. Prosperous, green. Agriculture at that time in Korea was was non-existent. 
an extremely poor country. But they banded together in this ideal village movement with these seven principles. And take a look at them. And these principles are what's missing, you see, in the countries that we've talked about, Haiti and Africa and many others. But notice, group and individual Bible study. Koreans fill their churches still today, every morning, with people to pray. And they gather in Bible studies. The only difference between today and 1907, their Bible studies are all done on computers and iPods, but they're talking together and going through God's Word together. And for that reason, South Korea is now one of the wealthiest nations in the world. This spread in spite of Japanese persecution, the world wars, and then, of course, communism came into the north, and many of the Christians in the north fled to the south and carried on this movement. So, the questions we have to answer, why isn't this happening in Africa? Why hasn't it happened in Haiti? And you know how much we're investing in Haiti. Our daughter and her husband spent 14 years in North Haiti as agricultural and health missionaries. And they said Haiti's biggest resource is its poverty. You know, North Americans coming down and just, you know, providing money. Uh, Why isn't it not happening in Latin America? How are we failing? What is not happening now that happened in the first three centuries, that happened after the Reformation, happened in England and in Korea? Because if we can answer this question, then you guys are going to know what to do. And you're going to know how to make bring about change. So, the Bible, God's Word, has to be in the hands and the hearts of people. Now, Bible translation has progressed remarkably, and that's wonderful. Even there, our focus has been skewed. We spend great effort getting the New Testament into the language of people. The Old Testament lags far behind. We should have done it in the reverse order. The Old Testament is the foundation of the kingdom of God. It's the foundation of the Christian faith. It is what Jesus built on, fulfilled, but without an understanding of it, we can't truly understand the kingdom of God as Jesus taught it. And then discovering in this Bible study the biblically holistic approach to life and what the biblical worldview is about. And so we've practiced a deficient missiology. Now, I'm speaking as a missionary for 35 years. And I was associated also with MAP International for a number of years, traveled to many parts of Africa, and in more recent years through CMDA and others have been to many different places in Asia and Latin America. So I have observed these things. We are very Western in our structure, 
in our organization, in our relationships, and in our means of communication. We are very materialistic. If you stop to analyze it, and it's very uncomfortable for me to even think about it, most peoples in the world, when they, when you ask them what is a missionary, a missionary is a person who is motivated by money. Because we have to charge for everything and keep account of everything. We focus on curative medicine and evangelism, but we ignore the people, their culture, their relationships, their basic assumptions, and their needs. I've mentioned short-term missions. We won't beat that anymore. But the real problem, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in every nation, and then the end will come. We like that verse. We say, hey, we're making progress. We're almost there. The gospel has been preached in almost every, well, in every nation, and to the vast majority of unreached people groups, it's now been preached. But that's not what Jesus said. We're preaching the gospel of salvation. Talking to people about accepting the Lord, coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore having eternal life and getting to heaven. And that's where we stop. But what Jesus said is the gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world. And that we have not done. We have not made disciples. We have not gotten to the root causes of problems. And so our worldview, and please note this down. You may not agree with me, but give it some thought. Our Christianity today in our churches, in our evangelical churches, including this, and including that most of the churches you come from, is very Greek, very Hellenistic. Uh, we focus far more on the Apostle Paul. And now, Paul was the first missionary. What Paul said is absolutely true. But it's very Hellenistic. And we focus very little on Jesus and what he taught about the kingdom of God. And in the evangelical Understanding of life, spiritual matters are here. God is up here. This is the sacred realm of life. But our everyday practical work is down here. It's the real life. Our focus is on heaven, but not on all of life. And this is what it looks like. This comes from a gentleman named Daryl Miller, who was with Food for the Hungry and has written a very important book called Discipling Nations, uh, there's this line of separation. This is primary. Get out and save souls. Medicine, education, agriculture, and so forth are secondary. Or if we're going to do medicine, it's to get people up there. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus healed sick people because they were sick. Jesus taught people because they were ignorant. Jesus did it all, and he did it all like this. So, uh, <clears throat> church planting. I really don't know where this term came from. I strongly suspect where it came from, but I don't dare mention that. 
It's not a good term. Because what do we mean by church planning? We mean establishing churches as organizations with pastors who, of course, have to be paid, with buildings which, of course, have to be built. That's not what Jesus told us to do. This does not come from the Scripture. We are to build the kingdom of God. If you want to use the word plant, we're to plant kingdom followers. Let them organize themselves into the kind of fellowships that are appropriate for them and not on the American model. Our biggest problem in Congo was the church uh, that focused almost entirely on budgets, money, getting more money from the United States, power struggles, conflicts, uh, all kinds of things that are purely Western and has almost lost its focus entirely on building the kingdom of God amongst people. So here's a very simplistic diagram of what our missiology is. I call it iceberg missiology. This is where we focus. Nothing changes down here. Because we haven't done discipleship, we haven't gotten people to dig into the Word of God as the Wesleys did in England. So we need to bring about transformation. You see, the goals of Jesus were to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to make disciples, and to teach them to obey everything that's in God's word, to obey all of God's laws, everything that I have commanded you. And so how do we go about doing that? Oh, this has got out of order, but this is what this is kingdom missiology, you see. It includes salvation. It includes John three sixteen. It includes heaven, eternal life, and all of that sort of thing, but it includes vastly more and it includes culture. Jesus was the most radical changer of culture the world has ever known, and we are his followers. So <clears throat> um, the gospel of the kingdom leads to abundant life now and to eternal life. Medicine, education, agriculture are all part of it. Jesus did it all. He preached, he taught, he healed, he cared for people, he wept for people, he knew people. Of course, they were his own culture. Uh, But he knew the culture and used it. And if we're going to work with other people, we need to know their culture and work within it. And this is just a very, very simplistic diagram, which I have found useful over many, many years. This is culture. Uh, I don't know why. I guess because well, it's not working. Oh, it's still too small. This is how culture exists. The outer layer of culture is our behavior. It's our customs. And when you go to missionary preparation courses, orientation courses, that's what you'll learn. The customs of the people where you will be serving. 
how to relate to them, how to understand them, and so forth. But most orientation programs don't go much deeper than that. We do what we do because we feel it's good for us. In other words, it comes from the values that we hold in our culture. Our culture is a high-trust culture. We believe trust is is of great value. Truth-telling is of great value. And so our behavior conforms to that. If those values are missing, our behavior will be different. But those values come from an even deeper level, from what we believe. What we believe about the world in which we live, work, uh, education, family, those types of things. But even below them and at the very center of culture is worldview. And you need to understand worldview. Uh, Worldview is basically assumptions that we rarely think about. We take for granted, but we build our whole lives and our culture on them. Now, most of your friends would probably never even have never even called into question their basic assumptions. But their assumptions about, well, who am I as a human being? Their assumptions about gender. What is gender, sexuality, maleness, femaleness all about? And of course, what is, who is God? Basic assumptions about God. And it's from that that come our beliefs and our values and then our behavior. And as you look at the cultural clashes that exist in our world today, and particularly the clashes between the Islamic world and the other, the rest of the world, well, it comes from the very center of Islamic worldview, the center of Islamic culture, the understanding of Allah, which is radically different from our understanding of Jehovah Elohim. Cultures function from the center outward, not from the outside in. But here's our problem. We do our education from without. We do our evangelism from without. We teach people how a Christian is supposed to behave. We teach people about, you know, the, the uh, religious aspects of Christianity. But this is where change has to begin and has to occur. And this is where we need to be. So, <clears throat> the beliefs that people hold about God determines everything else. Or about the transcendent. The belief of Richard Dawkins about the nature of the universe starts with his understanding of what's transcendent. That is, what's beyond human life. Secular humanism. The, in, again, Islam. Their understanding of God, or of Allah, determines their behavior. And our understanding of God, likewise. And from that comes our understanding of nature, of who we are as persons, evil, what it is, 
where it's come from, what we're to do about it. And for us in the health professions, it determines our understanding of why do people get sick and what must be done to help them recover. We have not impacted animism because we considered it superstition. That these are superstitious beliefs, beliefs in sorcery, magic, evil spirits, the curse, the evil eye, and so forth, are simply superstitions that when people become Christians and get educated will disappear. And that is pure deception from the devil himself. The animistic worldview is a real worldview. The occult powers that they believe in have power. And we need to understand, they, they, they fall into the Ephesians six twelve category, the principalities and powers of evil, the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark. That's what they, they're real. They are not superstition. And so we must understand that if we're to deal with it. Uh, and we have not. We have not taken the time to penetrate their understanding of life and then come alongside of them and relate to them on those deeper levels. Years ago, Miriam and I were at another center. We were taking an afternoon walk through a village. I don't know where the light switches are. You can't see this very well. Uh, Anyway, this is a traditional African house. Uh, mud walls. That's roof. But on top of this mud wall, the man has put cement blocks. And I looked at that house and I gasped and I turned around, ran back quickly to the room and got my camera to take this picture. Because this is such a powerful symbol of what we're doing. We're trying to build hospitals Uh, training institutions, agricultural programs on top of an animistic foundation and it does not work. And that's why so often when we get this wonderful idea it's time to turn things over to the local people and we do, it collapses because the foundations are not there. So what must we do? Build long-term relationships with people. Engage in dialogue about their culture. Listen to them. Gil talked about that this morning. Listening, listening, listening. Asking them, well, what did your ancestors believe in about God before Christianity came or before the modern world came? How did your ancestors Enforce morality amongst your people. What were the moral imperatives of the ancestors before Christianity came in? You'll find some very, very fascinating things. Some very remarkable things in old traditional cultures. But then we need to seek for links between their traditional beliefs and the word of God. And there are many links. And as I have dealt with this in many, many 
conversations that look like this, I've come up with some very, very fascinating concepts. Don Richardson is a man who has written several books about this. The Peace Child, An Eternity in Their Hearts, and Lords of the Earth, discovering within uh, traditional tribal folklore, basic understandings of life, redemptive images that have proved to be remarkable bridges in getting across the the gospel and, in our terms, in getting across concepts of health. And then getting people involved in small group Bible studies, studying the kingdom of God. One country where this is happening in quite a remarkable way is Ethiopia. There's a widespread growth of small group Bible studies in the Coptic church, in uh, amongst traditional communities, in evangelical communities, and now in Muslim communities. And as people are discovering God's word and what God says, uh, many, many are coming to faith and growing in their understanding of life. Okay, how can you prepare for this? Well, point number one is point number one. Get to know Jesus real well. Walk with Jesus. When you're studying, consult with Him. When you're working, consult with Him. When you're at leisure, consult. Live your whole life with Him. Develop the habit of studying the Bible inductively yourself going beyond what's written on the page, to dig down underneath to find out what was really happening here, in stories, adding details which weren't recorded in the scripture, but which most certainly were there, to understand what was happening and understand what the kingdom of God is. And I would encourage you to memorize 1 John 2.7. Yeah, thank you which says this, But as for you, Christ has poured out His Holy Spirit on you. As long as His Spirit remains in you, you do not need any man to teach you. The Spirit teaches you about everything. And what He teaches is true, not false. Obey the Spirit's teaching and remain in union with Christ. That verse has guided me for over 60 years. Go to the Holy Spirit to interpret the Scriptures. Now, that doesn't mean you don't read other people. It doesn't mean you don't need commentaries. They're useful. But go to God first and say, Lord, what are you telling me? What is this saying? Or in a small group, uh, taking time to ask God, what is this passage about? What is this story about? And then helping the people with whom you're working do the same thing. Study cultural dynamics. And there are places for doing that. Learn dialogue. Learn how to facilitate inductive studies. And then commit for the long haul. Language is essential. And get fluent in the language of the people with whom you're going to work.
But then in all of our transfer of knowledge, values, whatever it may be, base it on God. Not on science. If you're going to teach health scientifically, you'll accomplish nothing. Because the people you're teaching are not scientific. They can't understand what we're talking about. But if you can show to the people the ideas that you want them to understand, but that they come from God, that makes all the difference in the world. We go all over the world teaching people about latrines, outhouses. That's how I got started in community health. And my African colleagues simply said, well, doctor, outhouses are for Americans, not for us. Because their ancestors never had outhouses. And I said, well, who created your ancestors? Well, God did. And then I said, well, what did God say about latrines? Now, some of you Kentuckians, some of you North Carolinians, what did God say about outhouses? What's the biblical base for an outhouse? That's right back there in Deuteronomy. Go read it. Deuteronomy chapter 20. When I read that verse to them, they were astonished. God said that, and I said, yes. I said, your ancestors didn't have the Bible. They didn't know that. That's why they didn't have outhouses. But there it is. You know it now, and you know God wants you to have outhouses. Don't worry about the spirits of your ancestors. That made all the difference in the world. Because, you see, what I had done in that was to shift the authority of what I was trying to get across from me onto God's Word. So, learn that process. And then get people into in-depth Bible study. And by the way, that last point, don't spend your money on short-term mission trips. MedSend is getting very, very antsy. And when you come to us and we see you've done six to ten short-term missions, we may throw your application out. You don't need to go ten times to the world. One trip, maybe. Maybe two, that's enough. Spend your money on your study. And don't expect us to pay back your, your, the debts that have increased because you spent your money on all these other things. Pay attention to that. Be good stewards of the resources God has given you. Okay, just, there are some training events. Um, we do workshops on this kind of transformational process, community health. Do them twice a year at Echo in Fort Myers, Florida. And you can go into the, I should have put the website there. It's uh, www.echonet.org. Most things are .org. Ah, come on, where are we here? www.echonet.org Ah, oh well, anyway. 
This is also in a DVD uh, format now. We've put it into onto DVDs, The Principles and Practice of Community Health. Any of you who can't come to a workshop but want this kind of training, uh, it's available now in a DVD that you can study at your leisure. Oh. There is a new book that I have just produced called The Kingdom of God, What Is It? And it's inductive Bible studies, 52 lessons, starting with Genesis chapter 1 and going on through the Gospels. And then how do we apply this to our lives? Uh, that will be available the end of this year, probably from Amazon and from Wine Press. And that is a very is going to be a very useful tool in small group studies to help people dig for themselves as to what God has said. Now, your call. People ask, well, how can I find if I'm called to missions? You won't. The only call that comes is to Jesus. And then Jesus can assign you, can lead you, can show you. You know the story in the 21st chapter of John. Peter, who if you really examine what happened to Peter, was deeply, deeply depressed. Almost pathologically depressed because of what had happened over the events of the Passion Week, the crucifixion, and so on. And although he had seen Jesus, he couldn't process it. And finally he said to his buddies, you know, I don't know what's going on. There's only one thing that I do know. I know how to fish. I'm going back home fishing. And several of them said, okay, we'll go with you. And so they went back to Galilee. Peter got his old fishing boat out. And they all went out, and that night Peter discovered he didn't even know how to fish. And what was going on in his mind, well, use your imagination. But all of a sudden at dawn came a voice, hey you guys, you got any fish? No. Cast your nets on the other side. They did. They caught fish. They knew it was Jesus. And Peter jumped into the water and went to Jesus. And probably blurted out, Jesus, where have you been when I've needed you so bad? And then Jesus took Peter aside. And he simply asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. And then he said, feed my sheep. Jesus didn't talk to Peter about depression. He didn't talk to him about his childhood. He didn't talk to him about Peter. He just said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes. Notice also, Jesus didn't ask Peter if he liked sheep. Because <laughs> it didn't make any difference. Now, we loved our friends in Congo, our Congolese people. Wonderful, wonderful people. But that's not the key issue. He just said, do you love me? He didn't ask Peter, do you like to feed sheep? Because that didn't make any difference. Do you like medicine? That's fine if you do. I did. Do you like nursing? That's fine if you do. Uh, 
whatever it is God calls you to do if you like it so much the better. But that's not the issue. The issue is simply Jesus. Okay, we've got five minutes for questions. Uh, if you have questions, holler. But I will be down at Atrium 106 the next session, and you're welcome to come and have supper down there at 5 o'clock. Yes, I see a hand. I was just wondering how you explain how the kingdom changes the present and not make it sound like you're talking about um, a prosperity gospel. I have a problem hearing. My ears are 10 years older than I am. Stand up. <laughs> Yeah. about the way the kingdom transforms the present day, how the kingdom is now. How do you talk about that and not let it sound like the prosperity gospel? You use the word of God. God said to Abraham, you follow me and I will bless you. In order that you do what? Be a blessing, be a blessing to others. That's the answer to the health, wealth, gospel. God does not bless us with wealth and health for our own sakes. He blesses us with health and wealth usually, so that we then can be strong to bless others. And God's, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Get blessed. <laughs> okay, anything else? Then let me close in prayer. Lord Jesus, it's your kingdom we're talking about. And we are your followers. You are our Lord. And I just pray for every single person here, young, older, that you help each one to be just so drawn, so close to you, that everything else then fits into the proper perspective. Lord, draw us to yourself and then send us out with the good news of the kingdom to the peoples of this world. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen.